Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, oh. the episode-type thing where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these episode-type things. Uh, I'm David. I'm Tyler. And let's uh, jump in, right? Absolutely. I almost said my catchphrase, but that's reserved for main yeah. episodes only. Yeah, that's that's canon. Yeah. Um, now, after last, year, last week's... Um, three hour long extravaganza yeah. which apparently cuts off cut off at the end at the very end yeah like, I, I wonder i don't know why that happened host, like everything seemed to be okay when i edited it together i wonder if the hosting service was just like i've heard enough but like <laughs> yeah. like the listener we got halfway through our amazing race conversation and our host was just like yeah. this is enough it's worth noting that only two people told us which leads me to believe <laughs> which leads me to believe yeah. we a lot of people tuned out yeah we have far more listeners than that but i do think yeah. probably a lot of people tuned out at the end of the tv <laughs> section yeah uh, no tv section this week yeah um, no this won't be a very long one this week um because we didn't see nearly as much in the one week off as yeah. we did in our one month, <laughs> nearly Indeed. one month uh, before the last one. But I'll start. Okay. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about, and we're finally getting back, and I, I feel like the last one, um, even though it was a month and we talked forever, almost everything I talked about was a new movie. Yeah. Um, that's just like where my head's at at the end of the year. Now I'm, uh, I'm getting to the point where most of mine today will actually be older movies. As, as will mine, actually. Um, so uh, the first thing I want to talk about is a 1970 film. Uh, called Angel Unchained, okay. and it is a very low-budget uh, American International Pictures uh, production um, starring a young Tyne Daly in the okay. uh, romantic lead role, but it is essentially The Seventh Samurai, but with a biker gang instead of samurai. So, How did you see this movie? Uh, it's not important. Oh, okay. Um, okay. So, uh... uh now I'm forgetting the name of it. Don Stroud is the is the lead. Um, okay. He plays a character named Angel, who's the vice president of a violent biker gang. Okay. The movie opens with a very fun uh, biker gang showdown rumble in a like a carnival, and he decides he's had enough of the life, and he quits and goes out on the road. On the road, so you get this sort of montage of him working jobs here and there, and traveling and going to the countryside, and eventually, at a gas station, he sees some hicks. He's mm-hmm. trying to gas up his hog. I guess I don't. Okay. And he sees some, uh, Hicks harassing some hippies. He comes to the hippies rescue. Okay. Catching the eye of young hippie Tyne Daly. <laughs> and they invite him to pay and he ends up paying for their gas. Um, so it, in payment, they invite him back to their commune to eat dinner. He ends up staying, working the land, becoming a part of this hippie commune. Mm. But these Hicks won't leave the hippies be. They're coming, they're messing up their crops. They're trying to get them out of the, out of the neighborhood. 1970, you say? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So he decides, or he is eventually talked into going back to his biker gang and asking them to come and protect the commune against the Hicks. Okay. Uh, It sounds fun. It's actually a really good movie. Uh, I, re- I really enjoyed it. I mean, it does feel uh, it's very much that sort of, uh, you know, those like the I guess the grindhouse type movies where there's enough action that you could make a really awesome trailer mm-hmm. out of it. Yeah. But a lot of it is actually just sitting around and talking. Yeah. There's yeah. like a big fight at the beginning between the two gangs. There's like a little attack on the commune about halfway through. And then there's the big fight at the end. And that's it. And then it's mostly just sitting around and talking. Well, that's kind of seven samurai anyway. Right. When you think about yeah, it. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's, a, I mean, it's, it's that story. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And uh, I'm not sure how available it is, but uh, I would definitely recommend seeing Angel Unchained if you get the chance. 
Angel Unchained. I got to say, that title does not immediately make me think of Seven Samurai <laughs> or Magnificent Seven or any of those. Right. Um, that sounds fun. I love that kind of thing, which is movies that no one cares about. I mean, and, and I don't mean to say that in a negative way. It's just they've been forgotten to time. Yeah. And then you see it and suddenly it's like, what is this little gem? Yeah. I need to say something to the listener because I feel like the listeners, a lot of them know me to know enough. When I say I don't want to talk about how I see it, how mm-hmm. I saw the movie, it's not because I saw it illegally. I am against torrenting or oh, downloading anything yeah, like yeah. that. Um, I just, I don't talk about my day job. And so I right. saw it as a function of my job. Right. You uh, w- you were videotaping it. Uh, <laughs> yes, and, it will yeah. be up on yeah. the Pirate Bay uh, by the yeah. time you hear this. You're okay with the supply side, <laughs> yeah. not no. the demand. Yeah, I just, yeah, I don't talk about my job. That's okay. okay. Uh, so I saw, and this is the only new film that I've seen, uh, I saw Inuri 2's The Revenant. Okay. The Revenant. Um, I think I like it more than you did. And there's a lot of good in the movie. There's a lot of great in the movie. I mean, it's beautiful and well, beautiful, great score. Great score. Uh, when I say beautiful, of course it's, I'm speaking relatively like it's, it's an, it's a fascinating visual experience. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the special effect that, that bear attack is hard to shake. Yeah. Uh, unlike the bear, which it's very easy to ship for it to shake, uh, our poor Leonardo DiCaprio, like a little <laughs> rag doll. Um, there's a, there's so much to like. I, I think DiCaprio's performance is great. I think Tom Hardy's performance is really interesting, um, in a, in in a good way. Um, mm-hmm. The writing of his character is something I find interesting. Um, it really creates a world. And then I have a. You remember how we did an episode a while ago about like movies that push certain buttons. And if you push this button, I'll be happy with your movie, at least to a certain extent. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, Frozen Tundra is a it's for me a big deal. Okay. Um, it's and the fact that so much of this looked like ravenous, uh, like the world of ravenous, like it's <laughs> yeah. happening just over the mountain. Yeah. Um, I, I enjoyed that. So uh, there's a lot there that I really, really like. And yet somehow I can't quite embrace it now a lot of people there have been a lot of critics who are willing to discount a lot of the technical and artistic achievements by Inuritu or Lubeski or the actors or whatever because it doesn't add up to this this whole and I can see where they're coming from but I feel like I still like it because I, I still value a lot of those things individually. I, I don't I don't know that I disagree. I don't know that I agree that it doesn't add up to a whole. I think it does add up to a whole. Essentially, it just feels like a whole it, lot of nothing. Well, no, <laughs> no, I wasn't going to go that uh, okay. uh, that route. Um, it would have been too easy, yeah. I think. Um, it feels like Inari Two or Inari Two or whatever has built a uh, a really uh, well fashioned box and then put nothing in it. I think that that's how I feel. It's, so it's not that it's not a hole. It is a hole. Mm-hmm. It's just that it's a whole husk. And it's interesting that you that you think in terms of a box because a box is limited. It is not a thing that can be explored and it, uh, over and over again. You know, uh-huh. what you see is what you get. And so almost like Gravity, which I think is a better film, but this is not a film I feel any desire to go back to. Yeah, I, I think when we did the movie journal, when I talked about The Revenant, I compared it to gravity oh, okay. as well yeah okay. I, there i think they are and, and both we both like gravity better yeah uh i think because they're both meant to be more experiential than anything yeah. else but which is gravity is hopeful <laughs> and the revenant is mean mean-spirited i think is it 
Yeah, I think so. And that, that speaks to, and I won't speak about the ending, but the ending is kind of ambiguous and as tends to happen within Yuri two films, it seems to be thing. It's the film seems to think that it's doing so much more than it might actually be doing. Um, like almost like it fooled itself with all the technical right. mastery yeah. that it's doing something really amazing. And the one thing that I think it's doing that I find interesting is that so many people, when they talk about the film are talking about it from a revenge standpoint, they either talk about a survival standpoint or a revenge standpoint, yeah. but I think they often get the, get them mixed up that this guy is trying to survive so that he can get revenge. I think it's the opposite. I think he is using revenge as a motivator so huh. that he can survive because what other reason does he have? Um, uh, speaking of the movie thinking it's doing more than it does. And I, I don't was, like to say that that's kind of shitty of me, but, but you know I was I mean. kind of like puts me in mind of my reaction to um, DiCaprio's speech at the golden globes when he talked about oh, the yeah. first nations and native American peoples. And I felt, I feel like this movie commits so many of the sins that Westerns have committed since the beginning of cinema mm-hmm. in terms of treating the native Americans as mostly the other, uh, even though here it gives the main, the main, I, mean, I guess the main villain of the movie would be Tom Hardy or nature. Um, but the main native yeah. American villain, it gives him a motivation that we can relate to. That's very similar to Leonardo DiCaprio's to, yeah. to Hugh, Hugh Glass's um, motivation. Um, but it still seems, I feel like the movie, and I said this in my review that it lumps native Americans in as if they're another element of nature. And I, I and I feel like that's uh, reductive. I could see it being, a, a thing to deal with. I actually didn't think it was, don't get me wrong. There were part of me who was just like, man, these native Americans, they are, these Pawnee, they, they're brutal. But then I thought, well, yeah, but often in response to brutality. And also it's, you know, it acknowledges that like there was, you know, this one guy and, and DiCaprio's, um, short lived relationship with this one, this lone Pawnee who is very helpful to him and all that, who then himself yeah. talks about, uh, his family being killed by Sioux Indians. And then you look at the presence of the French who are the true villains of this piece. Like there's nothing <laughs> redeeming about the French in the film. That is true. Um, like and Tom I, Hardy, I mentioned that in my interview too. Yeah, like Tom Hardy, you can see where he's coming from a little bit, even if you don't sympathize him. Same with the Pawnee, same with nature, those French, I got nothing <laughs> for them. Yeah. Yeah, pure um, um, did you know, speaking of that one native American, he be friends for a small, uh, time. Um, now I happen to see both movies back like one night after the other, mm-hmm. but both the Revenant and the hateful eight have scenes of people sticking out their tongue and catching <laughs> snowflakes on their yeah. tongue. Did you notice that? I did notice that. Yes. <laughs> um, and so it's just uh, Hey, simple pleasures. You know what I mean? I guess so. Um, but yeah, so the Revenant it's, it's weird because I don't, I don't love the movie. I would say I really like the movie. Um, and I guess I, and I would recommend it because it is an experience and, you know, the way we were talking about gravity and the revenant as an experiential thing. Well, a lot of movies aren't that and don't try and aren't trying to be that. So any film that is trying to be that, and for the most part pulls it off. Mm -hmm. Uh, I feel like that's a thing that I, that I instinctively admire and maybe too instinctively will recommend that people see specifically in the theater, but be ready. It's not an easy film and it's intense. And the other thing is like, you know, that movie's two and a half hours. Uh-huh. And while I do appreciate that it takes its time and that every little step of survival is something we see, I appreciate that a great deal. Um, 
that also speaks to this idea of the film really thinking like we we couldn't possibly possibly tell this story in under two hours we can't do it can't do it yeah um and it just it which speaks to this idea of like a, a film that i think buys into itself yeah uh, a lot um also something that i don't think i mentioned when we talked about this but this is because of uh because m- i know this is an issue for my wife and for some of my other friends mm-hmm. uh in when i have recommended the revenant in terms of yeah see it in the theater if you're going to see it i have also made sure to warn people a lot of animals die in this movie. And I know that yeah. a lot of people have problems with that. And it did upset me a lot too in the movie, yeah. even though I think most of them are for a reason. There's one right at the beginning that is, I think intentionally senseless. Yeah, I that, think so. Uh, upset me, but it is intentionally sen- senseless. I, I think um, it makes a nice, makes for a nice, uh, microcosm <laughs> of, of, yeah, what the film might be so, trying to say. Uh, you know, there's that website. I don't know if it's still active. I haven't checked in a while. It's called does the dog die.com. I remember that website and it will, it does. It's not just dogs. It will warn you if you are sensitive to that it warns you away from movies where, and like, does the dog die in the, re- everything dies in the, re- yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, let's move on to, uh, the second film I saw. Now last, last week I talked, uh, I think I ended, movie section with um mentioning padre padrone or father and master um a 1977 film by the taviani brothers uh i didn't quite know what to say about it and i still don't i think it's um really interesting but i watched another one of their films okay from 1982 called the night of the shooting stars uh which is much more of a um it's a much more accessible uh film than padre padrone um but i don't mean that as saying it's uh you know, middle brow or dismissible or anything. I, I mm. actually think it is a better film overall um, because it's a movie, it's an Italian movie by Italian filmmakers, but I kind of kept having to remind myself at sections that it was Italian and not South American because there's so many hints of like magical realism, which is such oh, okay. a storytelling thing that I associate yeah, with, very uh, much so. with South American uh, literature and cinema. Uh, and Night of the Shooting Stars involves um, a uh, small Italian town um, near the end of World War II where the, that has been occupied by uh, German forces, but they know that they're losing at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Germans have uh, essentially wired the town to blow up and have told all the townspeople to huddle together in the cathedral, and that's where they're going to take care of them uh, while they blow up their houses. Um, and about half the townspeople are like, you know what? I don't trust these Germans. They're desperate. Um, I think they're getting us together together in the cathedral to kill us all. Um, so in the dead of night, before they have a chance, we're going to sneak away. So it's half, it's men, women, and children okay. um, of all ages uh, sneak away into the countryside, essentially trying to find the American forces that they are told are coming uh, to, you know, to rescue them or whatever and trying to avoid both the Germans and the Italians who are fascists, the fascist loyalists. Um, so it is, you know, it's a, uh, violent and sad movie. A lot of innocent people get killed in it, but it also has this sort of like this feeling of being, uh, folklorish do you know what i mean like that's where the magical realism comes in that that you feel like every character sort of is representative of something but not in like a lazy screenwriting way like in a um the the way of an old-fashioned yarn uh and 
it's a very it's a very episodic movie where you, you get to know the characters. It's narrated by one of the characters is a young girl, um, and it's narrated by her as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, it, I would definitely recommend seeing it. It starred the the father from the Padre from Padre Padrone, mm. um, who's very much a antagonist in that movie, is sort of the lead uh, protagonist okay. in the Night of the Shooting Stars. Um, and I meant to write down the actor's name because he, um, I love when you see an actor in two different things and you go, oh, like you didn't realize the first time. Yeah. But you see them in something else and you're like, oh, this person's a really good actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would definitely, yeah, I would recommend the Night of the Shooting Stars. Um, again, like I said last week with Padre Perdone, I'm watching these T- Taviani Brothers films because three of them, Padre Perdone, the Night of the Shooting Stars, and uh, Chaos, which I haven't gotten to because it's a th- over three hour long sort of anthology type it's a collection of short yeah they're all by the same by these directors but it's a collection of short films um uh that i guess are connected i haven't gotten to it yet because like i said it's over three hours long and i am back on my you know i'm not on holiday holiday break anymore i'm back on my work schedule yeah. i haven't had time to watch a three plus hour uh, italian film from the 80s yet but um <laughs> hopefully next week i'll be able to talk about chaos but i'm really glad that i saw the night of the shooting stars it's it's uh, really good all right all right so next for me is a film that, you know, have you, have you ever, I know that this is a thing I experience from time to time, that there'll be a movie that I think I have seen because I definitely remember renting and putting into the VCR or DVD player yeah. when I was in high school or college. Um, and then I remember very specific things about it. And then I realized, hmm, I think I might have uh, stopped watching after 20 minutes, not because I didn't like it, but because whatever reason, like yeah. I just had to stop watching and then never was never able to return to it. So uh, I was under the impression for a long time that I had seen all of Sullivan's travels. Okay. Uh, I had not. Okay. So I watched it and, and about after about 20 minutes uh, of stuff that I had seen, I started seeing stuff. I was like, this doesn't look familiar. Hey, wait a second. And so um, it is a, uh, have you seen Sullivan's travels? No, I have not. No. It is, I think it's my first uh, Preston Sturgis film. And then uh, on the Criterion Blu-ray, uh, they are nice enough to have a, an in-depth, like an hour and 15 minute uh, little mini doc about um, Preston Sturgis. And so as I, as I was watching that, I found myself really intrigued by him as a writer and director. And so I definitely want to seek out more of his films. But Sullivan's Travels is about a a very successful Hollywood director primarily of comedies and musicals and things that he himself feels kind of ashamed to, Uh to have made. Um, and so he decides he wants to make a, a drama called, Oh brother, where art thou? And he's going to, uh, and it's going to be something about the depression. You know, it's going to be about, uh, the hard times that people have to live with and the, and then several people from the producers to his own, uh, Butler says, what do you know about, what do you know about hard times? You don't <laughs> like, you've been pretty privileged your entire life. So he's like, huh, you're right. You know what? Here's what I'm going to do. So he gets these shabby clothes, puts a dime in his pocket and then goes riding the rails so that he can kind of understand what people are going through. And, you know, and then it, it winds up being a combination of, sad and funny it is primarily a comedy uh but in in the end like the thing that he keeps getting hit with is this idea that 
well, if he wants to make a movie for these people, you know, then maybe something that will not necessarily distract the, distract them from their troubles, but provide them with something of an escape. Um, and, and cheer them up a little bit, you know? And so he starts to wonder if like, well, I've been so good at making comedies. Maybe that's what I should keep doing. Somebody has to do it. And so it's, it winds up being a very interesting idea. Mm-hmm. And I find myself actually, uh, given the events of today, uh, the, the Oscar nominations came out today. I found myself instinctively thinking of Adam McKay, um, who with Anchorman and, you know, other, other such films, he clearly is just like, well, he's good at what he's doing and he's making people laugh. And then at the, when I saw the end of the other guys, I remember thinking, what, what is all this stuff? What movie did you think you were making here? (laughs) And then you realize, oh, he wants to make the big short really badly. He wants to make a movie about, uh, you know, not about real people, but something that should, that will inspire frustration and anger, righteous frustration and anger in other people. Uh, but where the di- the difference is, he finds a way to make it funny. He finds mm-hmm. a way to bring his sensibilities to something that is not inherently funny. And I think that's what's good about uh, The Big Short. And so I, I didn't mean to, to end talking about The Big Short, but when I looked at Sullivan's Travels and then I looked at like the Directors Guild nominations and then the, the Oscars, I found myself thinking, huh, there's an interesting line here. And I, uh, and I found myself thinking that like, any, any, anybody who is not super happy with where they are right now, or they, or they don't value what they do. Uh, you never know. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe what you do is incredibly valuable to the people around you or whatever it might be. So I don't know. It's just a really interesting movie and there's some good laughs in there. And, uh, I'm very eager to watch more Preston Sturges. Okay. Um, next up, I saw a movie that I don't think you've seen, okay. but I think you ought to. Okay. It's, uh, from this past year. It did not get uh, much attention. Okay. Sort of came and went, but it is available on uh, Amazon and other on-demand type services. It's called Danny Collins. It stars Al Pacino. Oh, yeah. No, I have not seen it. And Bobby Cannavale and Christopher Plummer and Supergirl and Josh Peck. Uh, And... um, That seems somehow sexist, uh, you doing that. Jennifer Garner. No, her name is Melissa Benoist. Oh, okay. She's delightful. Okay. Um, in everything she's in, I've, I'm, uh, a big fan. Okay. Um, uh, is actually, she has a very small part in this. Um, but it's the directorial debut, I guess, of Dan Fogelman, who's a, a successful screenwriter. And what he does here as a screenwriter, I think as a, as a director, he is, um, uh, perfectly competent. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't fuck up the movie. He directs yeah. it. He directs his screenplay, uh, just fine. Mm-hmm. Um, what he does is a screenwriter that I like, and it's something that I liked in crazy, stupid love as well, which he wrote, even okay. though I didn't think that was an all the way successful movie. Um, but I, I had this exact same thought while watching crazy, stupid love that I had while watching Jenny Collins is that he treats every character in the movie as if they're the star of their own movie. Like you could, like oh, yeah. you could easily see each person carrying a movie the movie on their own mm-hmm. it's about al pacino's character and annette bending's character and bobby cannavale's character and jennifer garner's character but mostly al pacino's um but everyone else uh like christopher Plummer, is such a colorful and interesting and well-rounded character as al pacino's uh, longtime manager mm-hmm. um do you know the the story for those who don't know he's an actor know. right no he's a, a musician musician okay 
who was like a folk star sort of turn or folk singer, unsuccessful folk, folk singer turned very successful pop star. That's right. Yes. Um, and he finds out that after he get when he was in his folk singer days, um, he gave an interview uh, where he talked about how much he liked John Lennon. Um, and John Lennon apparently wrote the magazine, wrote him, his character, Don, Danny Collins, a letter, but to the carrier of the magazine and the sleazy journalist of the magazine played by Nick Offerman in flashbacks hmm. or in a flashback, um, kept the letter. Didn't, didn't give it to Danny Collins. Thought hmm. like, uh, this John Lennon letter will really, uh, um, you know, be worth something someday. Huh. And so it's not until Danny Collins is Al Pacino's age, modern day, that Christopher Plummer finds like uh, he's looking for a birthday present. He's looking for John Lennon memorabilia and ends up finding this letter and gives it to him. And it causes Al Pacino to sort of have a very late in life, midlife crisis. Hmm. Um, and he cancels the rest of the, his tour. He goes to a Hilton hotel. This movie, I, I swear, half paid for by Hilton. Um, and gets a regular room, not a suite or anything, like a regular room that uh, you and I would get if we stayed at a Hilton. Yeah. Um, uh, has a piano brought in and starts working on music. Uh, and we find out the reason he's picked this hotel in this town in New Jersey is it's because it's near where the grown son he's never met, Bobby Cannavale, okay. lives with his with his family and uh, with his wife and daughter. Um, and so he's trying to... Uh, reconnect or not reconnect connect for the first time with his son um and get back to his inspirations and also he is starting a carrying on a flirtation with the hotel manager played by annette benning Hmm. it seems like when i'm saying it now it seems like it's juggling a lot but it all is part of the same story and uh it's it it seems like it's 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 not uh you know an art house masterpiece it's not like a you know digging into the the depths of the soul but it's a it's sort of like a um much more like mid-budget version of what i talked about with the martian Mm -hmm. being like a populist entertainment that any you know you can enjoy with people of all ages but is really smart and really good and never condescending and actually has some meat on its bones and has some motivation uh, behind the characters and you actually see him go through some stuff and the, the beats of the story. Some of them do play out how you could probably predict, but they don't all. Um, it feels like uh, organic, more organic, I would say, than Crazy Stupid Love, which mm-hmm. uh, is part of my problem with that movie. Um, and uh, I, I was, it was a pleasant surprise. I watched it on a, it's, I watched it on demand on a Sunday afternoon. Hmm. That's exactly how I recommend watching this to anyone. <laughs> Just lay on the couch and uh, watch it on demand. All right. Um, yeah. Danny Collins, surprisingly good movie. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, so I want, uh, this is a rewatch for me uh, and I'm, I'm intrigued by uh, the way we were talking about um, Angel Unchained because I am kind of a sucker for, not necessarily a remake because a remake is the same story, uh, just updated, uh-huh. you know, um, maybe same time period and all that, but like, you know, seven samurai then begat the magnificent seven, which then begat <laughs> angel <laughs> unchained, I guess, yeah. uh, you know, each of them so different from the other, but, the, but similar in spirit. So I first saw the Coen brothers, the lady killers in the theater Mm-hmm. Since then, 
I watched and purchased the Ealing comedy with um, Alec Guinness and Peter Sellers. Uh, and I don't know if I've seen the Coen Brothers Lady Killers since. Okay. Um, I might have, but I don't recall. But in watching it again, because it just popped up on Netflix, so I, I thought I'd throw it on while I was working. Um, and then it it successfully distracted me from work. I'll say that. Uh, to the point that I might have gotten in trouble. Uh, but that's, you know, no, it, it happens. Um, and the... Uh, yeah, Lady Killers is viewed as a low point for the, the Coen brothers. And I can understand why, because it seems so inconsequential. But it is definitely them... You know, it's interesting watching Sullivan's Travels, where you have uh, a film about the Depression, you have... You know, at one point, a bunch of prisoners get marched into this, uh, not into a movie theater, but they're going to sit and watch a picture show and all that sort of thing. All of that very much influenced the Coen brothers, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Mm -hmm. um, obviously, the title. Uh, and so they do have a love for probably the films that they grew up on or the films that they, that got them to fall in love with, with film. And mm -hmm. so, uh, by reimagining the lady killers to take place in, in the South and to cast, uh, and to have the characters be a little bit more outlandish and silly. Um, I think people maybe got frustrated by that, but I think it still has a, a visual zest to it and it still is fun and goofy and there's a lot of death. Uh, you know, do you've seen the lady killers? I know, right? I haven't seen either version. Okay. It's, you know, these, uh, these five guys come together for, uh, to pull off a heist and they are staying in the house of an old woman because, if, because of like the proximity of her house to where they need to be. And, uh, then she discovers what happened. And so it's like, all right, well, we got to kill this woman and it, things don't go well for them, um, <laughs> for a number of reasons. And in the, I, I, the original is a lot of fun because you get to see Alec Guinness being ridiculous. Uh -huh. Like he really did some f good stuff with, uh, the e Ealing is it Ealing studios, I think. Um, right. and, and everybody in the Coen brothers, lady killers is clearly having a lot of fun. Tom Hanks is acting the hell out of his part where he plays, uh, this professor who, who looks like Colonel Sanders and talks in an over-exaggerated uh, Southern accent and walks with a cane. And he was a professor of literature and his character's name is Goldpoint Higginson Dorr, PhD. <laughs> and just, and the way that he, the, the lines that they've given him to say are l wonderful to listen to. Uh, the way he says them are great. And then Irma P. Hall plays the old woman who is an actress that I've, that, that I, I liked for a long time. She was in a family thing. Um, and I believe she was in one of the, Ma I think she was in one of the matrix films as the Oracle. Um, Oh, but I think, I think she passed away or maybe somebody, I don't remember exactly how it worked out, but well, it's um, a different Oracle in the first movie, right. more first matrix than there is in the second and third because the actress died. I don't right. know if that's who that okay. is. Okay. It might be. And you know, what? I might be wrong. I might be thinking of, of somebody else. I thought it was her, but maybe I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I haven't seen it in a long time, but anyway, but she's an, she's a delightful actress who's very committed to what she, what she does. So, um, it's not a bad movie. Uh, I was thinking about it the way everybody else was, which was that frustrating period 
during that frustrating period between Oh Brother Where Art Thou and No Country for Old Men, um, even though that period does inv- include uh, The Man Who Wasn't There, which is marvelous. Um, oh, yeah. But I think people pair it with Intolerable Cruelty, which is itself very much a throwback to like screw- old time screwball comedies. Like, I think they needed to not necessarily get this out of their system, but I think they needed to like take some kind of break and just uh-huh. engage in these genre films and put their own spin on them and then here comes no country for old men you know so i don't know it's 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 not a great film by any stretch but there are genuinely funny things in it and and i think it definitely fits in if you watch this alongside hudsucker proxy and some of their sillier films i think it fits fits in perfectly all right um last one for me now okay you talk about movies pressing certain of your buttons okay you know and i was thinking when i watched this movie about how we have talked before about what we mean when we say favorite mm-hmm. and what we mean when we say best sure because it's tough to because best you're still there's no objective best so even when i when i say best yeah it's still subjective it's still yeah. subjective it's still yeah. coming from my own taste and stuff but i feel like when i say a movie is one of the best movies of all time the best movies or whatever i think what i mean is that its virtues can and should be appreciated by a large number of people. It's sure. good for cinema. Cinephiles will be enriched by having seen it. Mm-hmm. When I say favorite, I'm kind of saying like, I kind of, I can see why the people might not get this or like this. And I kind of don't care. Yeah. This works for me. So I saw, I'd never seen before yesterday. I watched what is now, I think going to be one of my personal favorite movies of all time. Mm. And, uh, it's made by a director or a, Screenwriter has written a lot of stuff, but okay. this is one and only directorial okay. uh, effort. It's from 1990. It is Tom Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. This is your first time seeing it. This is my first time seeing it. Have you seen it? Uh, not for a long time, but yeah, I remember liking it. It is so great. Yeah. It is so funny and it is so my kind of like, uh, I don't know, like <laughs> smarmy, erudite, smart person funny. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, a lot of wordplay. Yeah. Uh, it's like, um, uh, you know, it's it's sort of like the, and I, this is going to sound like I'm talking shit about it because I hate shows like Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me or mm-hmm. Says You on NPR. Do you ever listen to those? No, of course not. Um, I hate that because they're so pleased with themselves for all their, their, all their wordplay. Yeah. And yet for some reason I love the same type of thing in a movie and maybe it's just putting it gussying it up and putting it in a movie when it's considered and stuff and they're not all laughing at themselves the whole time well and because you're better. because they're crap it's it's not unlike the the character of goldthwaite higginson door phd uh-huh. who speaks you know who will quote edgar Allan poe on a yeah. regular basis you're cr- you're creating a character and so it's like how could how would a character talk like what kind of character would talk like this? Yeah. And then you go back and fill in all these details and then you get a great actor to play well, it. Yeah. And it's 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 more organic and it's more satisfying that well, way. Let me give you uh, an example of the dialogue. Okay. You and the listener. OK, because Rosencrantz and Gunnstern, because they are characters in a play. Right. And therefore, not actually real. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the thing is they sort of just exist and you never see them going from one place to another. They sort of tend to find themselves in different parts of the castle yeah. or at one point near the end, they find themselves on a boat. Yeah. Cause if you know the, they're played uh, by Gary Oldman, Gary and Oldman as Rosencrantz and yeah. Tim Roth as Guildenstern mm-hmm. most of the time, but they can't quite keep it straight themselves. Yeah. Um, uh, they find themselves on a boat. And so Rosencrantz says, uh, do you think maybe we're dead? And Guildenstern says, uh, no, because dead is not being, and you can't not be on a boat. 
And Rosenkrantz says, I've not been on a boat plenty of times. And he says, no, what you've been is not on a boat. (laughs) (laughs) That's the kind of conversation Uh, they're constantly having in the movie. Yeah, see, I remember enjoying the... I think I would probably just say flowery dialogue (laughs) delivered with obvious joy by two really great actors. I haven't seen it since probably high school. Um, and I enjoyed it then. Yeah. You know, but I want to be clear. It's not just that because it is also this like existential postmodern literary critique of saying, which which I probably would not have gotten in high school. (laughs) Basically saying like Rosencrantz and Gildenstern are characters that were invented by Shakespeare who have no purpose in the plot Mm -hmm. other than to uh, move some things along and be killed at the end. Yeah. Um, and they are completely unaware of why they're, you know, they've been ostensibly, if you know, it helps to know Hamlet a little bit, uh, beforehand. They've been called by the King. They're supposed to be old friends of Hamlet. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, Hamlet's acting crazy. Let's call his friends to come and figure out why, um, why he's acting so crazy yeah. and they end up getting killed. <laughs> um, yeah. And so they suddenly find themselves uh, on the road to Elsinore and then they are told it. What's great is it's Tom Stoppard's dialogue and Tom Stoppard's dialogue. And then it'll cross over with a scene from Hamlet. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And yeah. suddenly it'll be Shakespeare. And then immediately after it'll, it'll go yeah. back into, cause they're then the scene moves on into the next room or whatever. And Rosencrantz and Gildenstern are like, well, what did that all mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about it. Um, so they don't know what to do. Uh, they, they spend their time trying to figure out what is the best way to go or about this job they've been tasked with. Mm-hmm. But when it comes time to actually try to figure out what's wrong with Hamlet, which they think is their purpose, yeah. they're terrible at it because the play doesn't actually need them to do that. They're yeah. serving a different purpose than they think they're serving in a play. So uh, there's a few crossovers with Hamlet, and then it's just them trying to figure out who they are and what they're supposed to be and what their purpose is. Yeah. Uh, and then not being able to change, uh, anything. One thing that, um, it's, you know, I don't think this was Shakespeare's intention, but in the movie and the play it was a play in the, in the sixties first, um, and then became a movie in 1990. Um, apparently there were a lot of attempts to make it beforehand. Hmm. I was reading anyway. Um, but in the play, they find out they're going to die before they're going to die. And they don't do anything about it because they are, completely helpless to do anything but their purpose within the play. Uh, So it's kind of sad in that way, but it's never maudlin about it. It's always kind of funny uh, and cheeky about it. It speaks to this idea that I have actually found myself saying in more than one therapy session, uh, which is a podcast I'm going to be starting. Um, (laughs) The, uh, and that is this idea. And I apologize. This is very melodramatic, but I feel like it's germane to the conversation. Um, This idea of, I feel like I'm a supporting role in somebody else's movie. Um, uh-huh. I feel like I'm, I, I have also said, I feel like I'm Lisa Simpson and nobody enjoys Lisa episodes unless you're Lisa in real life. Oh yeah. I think most of my favorite episodes are Lisa episodes. I, I feel like you and I are kind of Lisa yeah. in real life. You know, we're the people that everybody else in town calls a know-it-all. And uh, you know um, what is it? Uh, Ned Flanders says, uh, the answer to a question no one asked. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, and yeah, that's, that's this, you're, you're bringing stuff back to me. Not that I was, not that I would use, I probably would not use the term existentialist again as, as a high schooler, but, but it did speak to me that the, the, the sadness and hopelessness in the midst of comedy is something that 
I'm not sure if that, that, that certainly wasn't the first time I saw that, but it was, it was very palpable to me, uh, as a high school. Now, here's the thing. This, this speaks to my not great memory of it though. So Richard Dreyfus is Hamlet. No, Richard Dreyfus is the actor. Player. Uh, yeah. Is, okay. That's his character's name, but he's the head of the theater, the, the acting troupe. Right. Hamlet is Ian Glenn. Oh yeah, is, yeah. Um, we uh, I, I don't know what you know Ian Glenn from, but he is now more famous for playing Jorah Mormont on Game of Thrones. Jorah Mormont, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. What do you know, Ian Glenn? I don't know. I, I can picture his face, yeah. and I, I know that it goes with this name. Yeah, as <laughs> uh, strange then, as that um, might be. The king actually, um, Claudius is that the king's name in Hamlet? Mm-hmm. I can't remember. Okay, um, is also uh, Game of Thrones. Donald Sumter, who was I think he played Maester Lewin on game of thrones okay uh yeah because i remember like a very um well obviously theatrical richard dreyfus yeah uh, and it made me think of the goodbye girl when i saw it right have you ever seen the goodbye girl no i never have it's pretty good okay all right uh last one more i do uh okay so this is another movie that i bought sight unseen because I thought I would give it a try. Um, it's for a some blind r- buy. That's what the uh, is that what it is? Okay. home video collectors call it. Well, they don't tell me what to say. I'm going to say I bought it sight unseen. Okay. Uh, which literally does mean blind buy. Like, there's no question about yeah. it. Um, so, yeah, I've been kind of adventurous with my... If there's a sale, I get a little bit adventurous with my Blu-rays. Okay. So, I purchased from Twilight Time um, the 1943... Robert Stevenson version of Jane Eyre. Okay. Which I had never seen before. Uh, I'm an, and I'm an Orson Welles fan. He plays, uh, Mr. Rochester. Uh, it is. Uh, and as I was sort of like when you watch the third man and you say like, there's a lot of Orson Welles in here, like for, as far as the making of it. Oh, okay. And I don't mean to speak ill of, uh, Carol Reed or Robert Stevenson, you know, both very good directors in their own way. Uh, but when you realize that, Wow. The director of Oliver apparently was very Orson Welles-ish uh, in, uh, you know, early in his career. And then uh, the director of Mary Poppins, also that apparently. Uh, and then I looked it up and sure enough, uh, when it came to ideas of fog and shadows, uh, Wells contributed a great deal to the film along with being an actor in it to the, hmm. to the extent that they offered him a producer credit and he said no. Um, Good for him. Good for him. No, his reason is shitty. Uh, he said, he's like, he goes, if you're going to be, be a producer on something, you shouldn't be just a producer on something. Um, <laughs> which is, which is like very few people can get away with saying that. And it's arguable whether he does or not. Um, but the film is gorgeous, David. It is. I mean, it is. I'm going to, I feel bad saying this. It's very, it's very Wells at the top of his game, except he didn't direct it, but it just, it, it's just informed by his sensibilities. Uh, the acting is marvelous. Uh, and you know, the, the, the darkness and the melancholy and the mournful quality and the loneliness that is inherent in that story, uh, is all there on the screen. Oddly enough, the film gets a little bit worse when Orson Welles shows up on screen Um, because he, I don't know. His performance is good. It just seems like it doesn't belong in the film that it's in. His is a bit more theatrical. Whereas everybody else, there's plenty of theatricality in it. Um, 
But for some reason, everybody seems to be operating on one tone and he operates on another. And I recognize that there's, there's a certain quality to, to Mr. Rochester that makes him different than other people and puts people on edge. So I think Wells probably locked into that, um, and made the character cruel, even in his tone, um, as, and very blustery and that sort of thing. Um, so I don't mean to say his performance is bad, but the tone of the film definitely changes once he shows up, uh, which I think, which I'm okay with, but it's, it's very strange how the film is before and then how it is after, but throughout it all, it is absolutely beautiful. And then with a a score by Bernard Herrmann, um, which is marvelous. It's, if you haven't seen it, seek it out and watch it on Blu-ray because it is, I I cannot stress enough how beautiful it is. I would love to see it. I've only seen the, I've seen the Kerry Fukunaga version from five years ago now. Um, it's five years ago. Uh, well now that's 2016. It's a 20. Oh yeah. Film. Okay. Um, yeah, I guess so. 2011 stealth. Good movie year. I'm going to say, um, so, uh, it doesn't get thought of, but it's a low key good movie year. Um, low key. I'll give you. Um, but, uh, the only other version besides the 2011. It's a one. sleeper movie. A good movie year. <laughs> I watched, uh, I watched the 1983 BBC mini mini series version of Jane Eyre mm-hmm. that, IMDb tells me is four hours long, but a part of me thinks I'm still watching it. <laughs> uh, Timothy Dalton played Rochester. In okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. That's it. Bye.